I'm sure whatever that helicopter is doing is not just practicing. It's probably something very urgent and important. So we will excuse him and uh, not pay attention to the noise. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, aside from all the COVID distraction, uh, did you watch the first presidential debate on Tuesday night? I was taught that if you didn't have anything good to say about something, it's probably best not to say anything at all. So, moving on. <laughs> you know, we've all heard trash talk at these high-level debates before, and all the debates moving up to that debate. It happens every election cycle. To me, it sounds sort of contrived, almost over-contrived, uh, so obvious. Um, it's like on all the candidates' prep work, you know, they're... They're taught that if candidate A says that, then you come back and let loose with this. And even though it might sound uh, rude, you'll get your point across and people will remember. We always uh, kind of go to bed in a state of shock after one of these things, as if it wasn't something we totally expected. And while the style with which a, a particular zinger was delivered might have been tempered or uh, maybe less tempered by the times, uh, it's really nothing new. When Ronald Reagan ran for his second term as president against Walter Mondale back in 1984, Mondale and others had suggested that at age 73 he was too old to be an effective president. As expected, at the beginning of the second debate, a reporter raised the question of age. Well, Reagan was ready for it. He famously replied, I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Another other than Teddy Roosevelt commenting on President McKinley's refusal to declare war on Spain in 1898 announced that he, quote, had no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. Scandalous, right? Well, maybe for the day. Abraham Lincoln, in a series of debates for the Illinois Senate in 1858, commented on his opponent Stephen Douglas' ideas, saying they were as thin as the soup that was made by boiling the shadow of a pigeon that had been starved to death. Zing, right? In those same debates, uh, Douglas had accused Lincoln of being two-faced. The future president responded by saying, I leave it to my audience. If I had another face, would I wear this one? <laughs> Lincoln lost that senatorial election, but owing to the new telegraph and the uh, the shorthand stenographer sent by newspapers to cover those debates word for word. He went from being a relatively unknown figure uh, to suddenly to one nationally known as a political force. And that helped him win the Republican nomination for president two years later. I suppose that if uh, the, the opponents in a debate were always nice to each other, uh, wouldn't even be interested in watching or listening. We've got a story about some pretty rude tenants in our gospel lesson this morning, and Jesus isn't pulling any punches when he tells it. But to understand the power of this parable, you have to read it in the context of when it took place. The week began on Palm Sunday, with Jesus riding into Jerusalem, triumphant and yet also humbly, right, riding on a donkey. He followed that up Monday by cleaning out the temple courts at the end of a whip where animals for sacrifice were being sold at inflated prices. The whole sacrificial system had been turned into a money machine. Luke tells us that every day Jesus could be found teaching at the temple, and that the chief priest, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the people were well along in their plot to kill him. 
The only thing that stopped him was his, his enormous popularity with the common everyday folks. These leaders were more concerned with their religious look than they were with their religion. They liked to talk the talk, uh, but in their hearts they never came close to walking the walk. To them, Jesus was simply trouble, a deluded man who claimed to be the son of God, a man who was uh, dangerously close to unplugging their ATM. His ministry was relatively young, just about three and a half years. But in all that time, the pressure had been building between the Lord and all those who were supposed to have been shepherding God's people. The problem was that the shepherds had come to love their religious traditions and the, the power, the, the prestige, the stature it brought them more than they loved God and neighbor. They'd become the epitome of hypocrisy, blinded to God's love, God's word, God's truth, and most of all, to God's son. And now in his own way, Jesus lets them have it with a parable. One of his stories with an embedded spiritual lesson. It's a story about a man who was the owner of a vineyard. Uh, vineyard imagery was used by God in Isaiah in our Old Testament lesson today to represent the Hebrew people. He talks about how he loved it, how he cared for it, uh, but it would only produce wild grapes and was therefore destined for destruction. God the Father was the vineyard owner in that, in that reading, just as the Father is the vineyard owner in Jesus' story. The one who had prepared the ground, who planted the, the vines, who dug the wine press, who built the tower to protect it, the wall around it to keep it safe. He cared for his people in real life. He'd set them apart. He protected them. In the story and in real life, they'd been a major investment. And now this man takes a trip. And while he's gone, he puts his vineyard in the care and supervision of the tenants. The tenants in the story are, represent the leaders of the Jews. The same people Jesus is talking to. It was a common uh, arrangement in those days that the rent would be uh, a portion of the crop. This was an extended trip. But when harvest time came, he sent a manager to collect the payment that was due. In real life, God's messengers were the Old Testament prophets. The renters promptly beat him, beat him up, and they sent him away empty-handed. Well, uh, he sent a second representative to collect the rent, and they beat him up so bad that he died. He sent more servants, but they were all treated the same. The renters actually refusing to give up the fruit. It was a vineyard and a winery that was fast becoming a, a place of violence and clearly out of control. Even the young Christian church's first martyr, Stephen, as he was about to be stoned, accused the leaders of the Jews, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Well, the tenants may have beaten and even killed the vineyard owner's messengers, but he wasn't about to give up. In the end, he sent his own son, thinking, sure, thinking surely they will respect my son. Well, the son in the story is Jesus. In Luke's version of this story, the vineyard owner wonders to himself, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps I'll respect him. My beloved son was what the father called Jesus at his baptism, remember? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But when the son arrived, uh, Jesus said they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him too. It's a reminder to us that the crucifixion took place outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
Since Jesus was telling this parable on Tuesday of Holy Week, he was describing what was going to happen in just a few days. When Jesus asked, what do you think the owner will do to them? His listeners predict that he will come and wreak his vengeance on the tenants. He will destroy them and give his vineyards to others. They're exactly right. But the story isn't just about vengeance. It's about patience. It's about the, the incredible patience of God. And it's about them. As hard as it is to believe that the vineyard owner would send his son to the tenants after they'd beaten and killed the other messengers he'd already sent, that's how hard it is to believe that God the Father would send his son into the world after he'd seen how his people had treated the prophets. That's right, Jesus told them. The owner will come and kill those evil renters and find new renters who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And here comes the zinger. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. And Matthew says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. That just means they wait for a better time, a more secluded place, like the Garden of Gethsemane that Thursday night. To you and I, it's uh, kind of unbelievable to think that the tenants who killed the owner's son would ever expect to be able to take ownership of the vineyard anyway, especially when the vineyard owner was still alive. You know, but selfish ambition and greed can blind us to God's presence. Other things too. You know, we all know people who maybe were raised in the church or went to the church faithfully for a long time and got to a certain point in their lives where for whatever reason, they began to drift away, uh, blinded to God's presence in their lives. And yet God is, is still there, still in their lives, uh, working through his Holy Spirit to, to open their hearts, to bring him back to worship again. We don't always know why it happens, um, but there's some things we can do about it. The very best thing is to continue to invite them back into worship and, and certainly pray for them, that, that God would, would work something in their hearts to bring them back. Um, but they can be blinded to God's presence too, even these days. So the, Jesus goes on, he says, the vineyard would be rented out to other tenants. And Jesus anticipating the, the entrance of the Gentiles into the church. Gentiles were anybody that, that wasn't uh, Jewish. When the Jewish synagogues rejected the preaching of the apostle Paul, he turned to the Gentiles, what we call the new Israel. Um, and within one generation, Gentiles actually outnumbered Jews in the Christian church. It grew like wildfire. Israel's religious leaders had a long history of silencing the prophets God sent, and he'd sent plenty. But what they were really doing was silencing the word of God that they brought. They didn't want to hear that it was God's vineyard they were messing with. They didn't want to hear that God had simply entrusted them with the care of his people for a time, that the vineyard still belonged to him and always would. They didn't want to hear about the fruit they should be bearing as God's people, things like kindness, and mercy, mercy, and justice, and love, fruits that grow out of a life of true righteousness, a life lived in response to, to God's love for us, something that, that's evidently pretty easy to forget. Suppose you had to line up to get into heaven one day, and at the front of the line, there was God sitting at this great big desk. He was asking people what they believed. Right, and someone else, you know, someone would say, well, I believe in world peace. 
And the next person said, what do you believe in? He said, well, I, I believe in taking care of the environment. Answers could be all over the board, right? But do you think you'd hear anybody say, I believe you're in my seat? <laughs> you wouldn't think so, would you? And yet, that's really just what this parable was accusing the church leaders of. The right answer, by the way, and the only right answer when it comes to getting, to, getting into heaven is, you know, I believe in, in, in Jesus and his uh, shed blood for me on the cross. I suspect there have been plenty of times we've all tried to, to put ourselves in God's seat. Times when we've acted as if this world were our kingdom. Times we forget that we're just tenants here on earth, not the owner. That this earth and everything in it really are just on loan from God. It's like the church that was located next to a small supermarket. Since the church was still short on parking spaces and the market was closed on Sunday, the trustees asked the owner of the market if it would be okay to, to park on his lot. The owner's response was, yeah, fine. You're welcome to use it 51 weeks a year. Well, what about the other week, they asked him. Well, that week, said the market owner, I'll chain off the lot so that you always remember that it belongs to me and not the church. Good idea, right? We act like owners, but we're just tenants. God is the landowner. This really is our Heavenly Father's world. He made the world and everything in it. He planted the trees and the plants that give us food. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. The land is fruitful and blessed, and we're privileged to be able to tend it and care for it as tenants of his creation. But God is still the owner. He owned it before we were around, and he'll own it a long time after we're gone. The fact that he's not visibly present doesn't change that fact. You know, but we don't much like working land that isn't ours. It goes against everything we strive for. It goes against the American dream of actually owning a little piece of land in a home someday. But there's another issue here. We don't want to be accountable to anyone but ourselves, so we refuse to recognize God's ownership. We don't want to give God a proper share of what rightly belongs to him in the first place. And that's why when God sends his messengers, we kill them. Or silence them one way or another. It's happened all through the history of the world. God would send the prophets to remind people that he was still around and that he had certain expectations. But the people were so hostile toward God that they would beat them, drive them off, imprison them, or even kill them. All the way up to the day God sent his son Jesus to speak for him. And if it weren't for the Easter resurrection, that visit would have ended on the cross. Now, even today, there's some places in the world where preaching the gospel freely will earn you a death sentence. What do you think the world would be like if the tenants were allowed to get away with their rebellion? Oh, we've been watching glimpses of it all summer, haven't we, as so-called peaceful protests have turned into rioting and looting and burning. It's frightening to think about what's lying in wait just below the surface of civilization. It's a familiar theme. It's a common thread that stretched all through mankind's history ever since Adam and Eve first chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. Now the Bible tells us that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them, but rather than being moved to repentance, they hardened their hearts against him. You know, Jesus' parables are really the original timeless stories. They're timeless because just as the Pharisees saw themselves as the rebellious tenants, the story holds a mirror in front of us as well. 
Every time we act uh, self-centered instead of selfless, we swing the hammer that drove the nail into our Lord's flesh. Every time we ignore his teachings or blow them off as old-fashioned or, or out of touch with our modern world, irrelevant, we drive the spear deeper into his side. Jesus quotes two verses from Psalm 118 when he says, The stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Our parable this morning isn't the end of the son's story. In real life, it didn't end in defeat and death, but in victory. The very stone, the one that would soon be rejected and nailed, and nailed to a cross outside the city gates, would become the capstone, the, the keystone of a new kingdom. Jesus turned defeat, the defeat of death into victory. He turned the grave into new life when he rose from the dead. He ushered in a righteousness that would be ours by faith. You see, in spite of our tendency to be unfaithful to the Son in so many ways, the Father remains faithful to us. And rather than destroy his wicked tenants, God patiently invites us to repent and return to him. Until the day the landowner once again sends his son, this time to set it all right, we'll always have another chance. That's really the good news ending to what kind of sounds like a bad news story. Well, praise be to God. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts, your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment to